Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Our scripture reading, as we segue now into hearing from the Lord, is in Hebrews chapter 3. And this morning, in a posture of reverence, I'm going to ask you to stand as we receive God's word together. I'll read, if you would please follow along and let us hear the voice of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. These last two weeks, we have been in a uh, two-week series on worship, and specifically how worship fuels us and forms us for mission. Now, you probably have figured this out about Waterstone, that if you've attended here for a while, that you know these gatherings, uh, we hope they're uplifting, we hope they're exciting and give life. But really, their primary purpose is not to give you and I some inspirational goodies and send us on our happy way. We are a church that's relentless about mission. And the purpose of worship and why these gatherings exist is to fuel us into being relentless about that mission. Here's the mission of Waterstone, and again, I'd like you to read it as we're in this two-week vision time. Read it aloud with me. Here's why we exist, to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. Last week, we looked at Psalm 95, and there we talked about how worship 
fuels us for mission. It fills our tank. How? Well, the act of worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to the ultimate object with our entire being. And as we do that, we begin to understand that our heart is actually shaped for this kind of worship. And so that the more we spend proclaiming and, and, and just reflecting on the deep glory and the high beauty of God, our hearts are filled. And our hearts being filled enables us to leave this room week after week with fuel for more mission. Worship fuels mission. Today, we'd like to talk, part two, about how worship forms us for mission, how it strengthens us and builds us up so that when we leave here, we are encouraged to again engage in the mission. Now, you may have noticed that we're using a text from the New Testament, from Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 is a very interesting book in the New Testament, not least of which is because it's probably one sermon. If you want an example of the preaching of the early church, Hebrews is your book. Many scholars think it was one interrupted, uninterrupted uh, sermon that was read to the early churches. It's rather interesting, and it's quite a worship manual as well. But the big idea of the book of Hebrews was this. The people, you know, they were being harassed. They'd made, much like we talked about in the Muslim world, but in that early church, to, to, if you were a Jew especially, to convert to following the risen Lord Jesus, it cost you. It cost you friendships and relationships. Your businesses would probably be shunned. There was hostility and, and uh, just a, a tremendous decision with cost. And so many in the early church were experiencing those outside threats of turning to Jesus and all the repercussions. But also internally, in the middle of the book of Hebrews, there's this one section about everyone's worry because some are walking away. Some decided to go back and away from Jesus to their original uh, set of beliefs. So there's these external threats and internal threats, and the Hebrews are thinking to themselves, boy, if God loves us, why is this so hard? Why is this so hard? And the answer to the book of Hebrews, from the book of Hebrews, almost every chapter you come across this little phrase. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your mind on Jesus. Fix your heart on Jesus. Jesus is better. That's the answer given to the early church. Jesus is better. Today we'd like to look at that text because how worship forms us, if I could put it in a one-sentence explanation, worship forms us for mission by reminding us that Jesus is better. Are we ready to be reminded today that Jesus is better? Now, the reason we have to be reminded, you and I, we know this, is that our heart often gets fixed on other things besides Jesus. It does. It gets fixed on things that we think in this thing called life, this wilderness we call life, sometimes we think we have better options than Jesus. That's why, for instance, if you ask me, we could have a cup of coffee about this, but one of the things that I think uh, reasons, especially as we're going to be in the next year, it's going to be crazy again, but we think of politics. Why is politics so divisive? Why is it so charged? Because we lose sight sometimes that Jesus is better. 
And so we're scrambling for anything else we can grab onto to give some sense of meaning and security and significance to our lives. And whether that's politics, whether that's our work, whether that's apocalyptic romance, whether that's family, whatever it is, we grab onto other things we think are better and we lose sight that Jesus is better. I was reading a blog this week. I like to read the magazine uh, Christianity Today. And there's a public theologian in there I, I recommend named Russell Wilson. Uh, Russell Wilson. <laughs> Russell Moore. Russell Moore. <laughs> He starts out the blog talking this way, and see if, see if this has been your experience. A friend told me about a mutual acquaintance he had who was always a happy, kind person, but who now, at least in some contexts, seems filled with fear and anger. It's like I'm hearing the same voice my friend said about his friend, but now he seems resentful that I sometimes walk, I wonder if I'm talking to the same person that I used to know. Almost everyone I know, Russell Moore says, has experienced something like this in church, in workplaces, even at the family dining table. The whole world seems to be seething with resentment. Is that any of your experience out there? Now, he goes on to talk and unpack some reasons for it, and one of the things that he comes to is about in, in our world with so much technological advance, so much education, so much hope and promise given from you know, all these things, technology, education, politics, that sometimes we get this idea that we can actually fix much of what's wrong going on in our world. And we get our hopes up and, and we get these um, ideas that we can actually bring the new kingdom and the new world ourselves. We can actually get out of the wilderness, so to speak. And then... At the end of the, the blog, Russell Moore gives this. We'll put this on the screen. Our insistence on controllability and resonance at the same time leaves us with neither. We either become cool, unaffected by anything, and thus numb to wonder, joy, and love, or we become hot, driven by our libidos, and then angry or terrified when the world or our institutions or our culture or our families can't meet those expectations. We live in the wilderness. We live in this place where we're always hoping that it gets better. And when it doesn't, we, because we turn to things that proclaim to be better than Jesus, we end up seething with resentment. So today, we'd like to look at this text, dig into it for just a few minutes, and understand why coming here week after week in public worship, why it's so essential to our mission because it forms us. And we're gonna be looking at two ways in which it forms us. First, worship forms us by exposing that sometimes our hearts get fixed on things that are less reliable than God. Let me say that again. Worship exposes that sometimes our hearts get fixed on things less reliable than God. And then second, Worship, week by week, forms us for mission by encouraging us to hold on to our original conviction. Hold on to our original conviction. And we'll unpack that phrase, original conviction, when we get there. Sound like a plan? Ready to jump in? 
Here we go. Let's talk about how worship exposes those things that we hold on to that are less reliable than God. And what the writer, the preacher in his sermon does in Hebrews is he goes back to a classic example of when God's people did this, when their kind of hearts were fixed on something less reliable than God. And he goes back to the very early moments of Israel being formed as a people to the wilderness generation. So let me quickly tell this story. It's a story that perhaps some of you will remember, but it's a fascinating story. What Israel, you remember, the, it was the, the most massive, miraculous migration of a people group still in, in world history. The texts tell us in the First Testament that over 600,000 men were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Now, in the, first, in the ancient world, men meant families, and so there was wives and women and spouses and children. It's estimated that we're talking about a people group of 1.5 million people. You say, wow? How many? That's a lot of people being rescued from Egypt by God's miraculous power shown in both the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. 1.5 million people leaving Egypt and actually God putting in the Egyptians' heart to give them all their wealth as they go and go, and get, and go to a land that, that God had promised to give them. The promised land, symbolic in the First Testament of God's presence and God's rest. So here they go, 1.5 million people. They're in Kadesh Barnea now. They can see from where they're standing the promised land. They know it's still inhabited. They know there's tons of work to do. So what they decide to do is do logistics and make plans. And you remember they send in 12 spies, one from each of the tribes, and they go and they scout out the land and see all the work that's going to be needed to done to get to the promised land. So you might remember that the 12 spies, they find consensus, all 12, on two things. One this land is amazing. Milk and honey. It's like in the Amish country where they put jars over the plants as they come up and they come out already canned to feed the world. <laughs> Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It's, that's how it happens, I'm telling you. And um, promised land, milk and honey. The second thing they agree on, the current inhabitants are fierce, formidable, fortified, and huge. They are like Chatfield playing Cherry Creek Friday night. And all the linemen at Cherry Creek are already Division 1A, our poor Chatfield boys. These are massive individuals and firmly rooted. And how in the world is this going to happen? Well, they come back, they bring the report to the people, and now they have non-consensus. Because 10 of them say, it's too much. It's over. We can't do this. Did you see their size? Did you see how fortified they are? We can't do it. And then there's two, Joshua and Caleb, who say, wait a minute. Aren't we going to live our theology? Aren't we going to say God is great and he's powerful? He's bigger than Cherry Creek? Aren't we going to say that God is good, that he's made promises to us, that he won't leave us here now to die? Aren't we going to say that God is great and God is good? Aren't we going to worship him now and rest on his promises? And the people say, nope. No, we are not. We're going to rely on things that are less reliable than God. And we're not going any farther. And after a while, 
their hesitation begins to cost them. I mean, this is a massive group of people and they're hurting for water. And without going into a whole nother story, but it's within this story, they start grumbling and complaining because they now accuse God of treachery. They doubt his character big time. They say, you've brought us out here in the wilderness to die. And then they start having these flashbacks. It's just really incredible. They start thinking, and they complain to Moses and Aaron. In Numbers 20, it actually says they were quarreling with the Lord and complaining to Moses and Aaron. But they start to say things like, we had it so good in Egypt. We had melons and leeks and garlics, which are garnishes for fancy food in the ancient world. And you begin to think, wait a minute, you were in bondage in Egypt, and now all you can remember is food that you never had? What's going on? What's going on is they began to trust things less reliable than God. What's going on is that they began to see their problems more than they see the promises of God. And as a result, that first generation, they all die in the wilderness, never entering the promised land. That would be for their children and their grandchildren. The only two who get to enter the promised land are the two original spies, Joshua and Caleb. Now, as we begin to understand that, the preacher begins to apply it for us. In Hebrews chapter three, verse 12, after the story's told, we say, so what? And the preacher says, here's the so what, see to it. (laughs) See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Don't be like them. In fact, to make his point, and what an amazing preacher this writer of the book of Hebrews is, in verses 16 to 18, he uses brilliantly five rhetorical questions. We won't read it all again, but he's really getting them to stay, to put them, that first generation, in like all caps, them, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Them, 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 them. It's a brilliant language tool. Don't be like them. So, again, what did them do? What them did was to focus on the problems in their lives more than the promises of God. What they did was confuse life with God. And they allowed their circumstances to become God to them. Let me put it this way. They defined who God was by their circumstances rather than defining their circumstances by whom God is. That language comes from a paragraph I've never forgotten in Philip Yancey's book called Why Bother with Church? And he tells this amazing story about a person named Douglas that he interviewed when he was writing his other book called Disappointment with God. Philip Yancey writes, just when Douglas made a sacrificial decision to enter urban ministry, his world unraveled. Funding for his ministry fell through, his wife got cancer, a drunk driver hit his car, 
badly injuring Douglas and his 12-year-old daughter. Not long afterward, his wife died. I wanted Douglas to describe his disappointment with God, but to my surprise, excuse me, he reported that he had not done such, had not had such feelings. Douglas said, I learned a long time ago, and especially through these tragedies, not to confuse God with life. I'm no stoic. I am as upset about what happened to me as anyone could be. I feel free to curse the unfairness of life and to vent all my grief and anger. But I believe that God feels the same way as I do about that accident, grieved and angry. I don't blame him for what happened. Douglas continued, and I think we have this on the slide. I have learned to see beyond the physical reality in this world to the spiritual reality. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair. But God is not life. If we develop a relationship with God apart from our life circumstances, then we may be able to hang on when the physical reality breaks down. We can learn to trust God despite all the unfairness of life. Do you sense here what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us now, thousands of years later, calling us back to look at what you know, we tend to rely on that's less, less reliable than God? He's saying that the greatest danger to our faith is not outside threats like being persecuted or shunned. And it's not like internal threats of people in here having doubts and walking away. The greatest threat to our faith is a slow leak of losing trust in the promises of God and losing vision of his power and his goodness. And when we begin to shift from seeing above all our problems where his promises begin to be obscured, that's when our faith is in danger. So, we come in here week after week. We come into this room. How does worship form us? Well, we come in, we bring everything in with us, don't we? We bring in the, the family relationships, maybe with our kids or our spouses that are struggling. We bring in our, our friendships that are hurting or maybe our loneliness where we wish we had more friends. We bring that in with us. We bring in our work stress. We bring in our, our disappointments about our dreams and our definitions of success. We bring in this idea of, you know, I, I thought I would be in a different place than where I am in life. We bring all that in, and we sit down together. And Maddie or Sarah or Ben, as they did this morning, they gather us, and we like to do this liturgy at Waterstone that is the call to worship. And when someone says in the call to worship, let us worship God? Do you know what that really means? It's not about us. There's another story, a better story. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, thank goodness. Because my story, much of the time, it's struggling. It's hurting. It's not turning out the way I thought it would turn out. 
And we come in here and we say, there's a better story that we can be a part of. And we begin like to, to get the vision back and we begin to put our problems in their place, so to speak, and in perspective and we begin to see God is great and God is good and even as hard as my life is and the things that are going hard in it, God is still the one who calls us to the story and wants us to be a part of it. Uh, I've never forgotten uh, years ago reading a book called The the Diary of a Pastor's Soul by Craig Barnes. He's, I think he's retired now, but he, he used to actually be the uh, pastor of a cathedral in Washington, D.C. And uh, he wrote about like worship, public worship, and often when the service ends, in many traditions, the pastor will stand at the back door. I'm really glad we don't do this, but the pastor will stand at the back door and everyone goes out and shakes the pastor's hand. Now, I, I always want to shake your hand. Don't, don't misunderstand, but not all at once. Now, <laughs> Craig Barnes said, occasionally someone will come through the line at the door following worship, shake my hand and say, well, that was nice. <laughs> now back to reality. It takes everything careful in me to resist taking that person by the neck and yelling, don't you get it? You just had an hour of the most real thing you will encounter this week. You stood before the holy, holy, holy. Now it is time to return to your mission to witness the beauty and truth of this holiness in a society that is so distracted and so hurting that it has no idea how to see the beauty and goodness of God. This worship service was designed to wipe the smudges off your spectacles so you could behold. The people around you need to believe that at least you believe. That's what this service was about. Craig Barnes says, I don't say any of that, of course. I just chuckle and respond with, yes, so I can keep the line moving. But a voice inside my own soul says, swing and a miss. They still don't get it. That's why pastors exist. If they understood the holy claims on their lives, they wouldn't need a pastor. But next Sunday, I get another at bat. The purpose of worship is to form us for mission by exposing the things that our hearts are fixed on that are less reliable than God. The second thing, and reason we worship is to form us for mission so that it takes us, encourages us to hold on to our original convictions. In verse 14 of uh, Hebrews 3, it says that the purpose of worship is so that we can hold on to our original conviction. What's our original conviction? Well, it's on every page of the New Testament. The original conviction of a follower of Jesus is Jesus is Lord. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the director of all of history towards its intended end. Jesus is the one who has lived the life we should have lived, and he gives that to us when we follow him so that we can be declared righteous in God's sight and live in his very presence beginning now. And Jesus died the death we should have died so that all of our sins on him, on the cross, can be forgiven. And then he walked out of his own grave, which conquered death and all evil. And then he's promising to come 
come back. Just like he, he ascended, he will return again. And all things made new. This is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. That's the original conviction. And week by week, we, like a computer disk, go out into the wilderness and we get fragmented on all these other things about what, you know, that might be better than Jesus that can give our heart what it wants when we come back in here. The other thing we do after we say, let us worship, some point in the service, Jesus is Lord. And we're reminded, oh yes, he's in charge, not me. He's the one who can calm my anxious heart and satisfy the deepest longings that I have. It's Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Every week, our original conviction is Jesus is Lord. N.T. Wright wrote a book on worship several years back, and here's the opening paragraph of his book on worship. Here's why we gather to be formed. How can you cope with the end of the world and the beginning of another one. How can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us unable to cope with saying either of those things condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. We may not be content there, but we don't know how to escape. Mm. We worship to be encouraged to hold on to our original conviction that Jesus is Lord, that he makes the promises and his power and his character stand behind those promises so that because Jesus who came for us and became one of us is not only powering them and his goodness on display but he's actually with us in the wilderness as we walk through. Jesus makes promises and we hold to those. This past, uh, two couple weeks ago, I was watching the uh, funeral for Tim Keller, a great pastor in Manhattan who, who passed away. And uh, the eulogy was given by a man named Sam Albury. I've read Sam Albury's work for many years, and this particular excerpt from one of his books came to mind. And it speaks to holding on to the promises of Jesus, to holding on to original conviction. In one of his books, Sam Albury writes this about his, same, his struggle with same-sex attraction. Homosexuality is an issue I have grappled with my entire life. There have been all sorts of ups and downs, but this battle is not devoid of blessing as Paul discovered with his own unyielding thorn in the flesh. Struggling with sexuality has been an opportunity to experience more of God's grace rather than less. But over the last couple of years, I have felt increasingly concerned that when it comes to our gay friends and family members, many of us Christians are losing confidence in the gospel. We are not always convinced it really is good news for gay people. We are not always sure that we can really expect them to live by what the Bible says. 
It is not simply possible to argue for gay relationships from the Bible. The Bible consistently prohibits any sexual activity outside of marriage. As someone who experiences homosexual feelings, this is not always an easy word to hear. There have been times of acute temptation and longing, times when I have been in love. But I have learned that what we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. For me, these include a wonderful depth of friendship God has given me with many brothers and sisters, the opportunities of singleness, the privilege of a worldwide ministry, the community of a wonderful church family. But greater than any of these things is the opportunity to learn the all-sufficiency of Christ. My main point is this. The moment you think following Jesus will be a poor deal for someone, you call Jesus a liar. Discipleship is not always easy. Leaving anything cherished behind is profoundly hard. But Jesus is always worth it. Worship forms us for ministry by encouraging us to hold on because Jesus is better. Sometimes we just need to realize that the promises of God go deeper than our expectations. One of the reasons it's difficult to see God fulfilling his promises to us is because they promise more than we could have ever expected. You look at a promise that's again and again in the Psalms, like trust in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Trust in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And often, what's our response to that? Yes, a great career is gonna be mine. Yes, a great romance. Where are they, though? And we don't realize that these are often means to an end and not the end. The real desires, the real ends of our heart are things like significance and acceptance and the healing of wounds and the forgiveness of sins and the sharing in the high beauty and deep glory of God. And God says, I will give you the desires of your heart, but, and here's the trust part, you may not really know what will satisfy you and the desires in your heart. I do. Trust me. Trust me. Hold on and trust me. I close with a one of my favorite stories over the years, collected a number of them, but I heard a, a young pastor years ago talk about a vacation trip that he planned uh, with his kids. He wanted to drive them and his, his wife and three kids to Disney World. And they wanted to drive just to save on expenses, and so the way they thought the paradigm would look is that they're supposed to say, hey, why don't we do this? Let's just, we're, we'll, we'll say to the kids, we're gonna drive them to Kansas and when we get to Kansas, we're going to have ice cream and go bowling. And we're going to say, like, the ice cream, like in Kansas, like the cows are in back of the ice cream shop. 
And the bowling in Kansas, it is so much fun. It's a strike all the time. And then when they get to Kansas, they'll bring out the Mickey Mouse ears and said, kids, we've changed our mind. We're just going to keep on driving, and we're going to go to Disney World. So they start driving to Kansas, cross the Kansas border. They get into the, one of the towns where uh, it, it looked like there could be ice cream in Bowling Alley. And uh, they whip out the Mickey Mouse ears. Kids, we're in Kansas, but guess what? We're going to Disney World. Let's just keep on driving. And the kids in the back seat, ah, I wanted ice cream. I want to see the cows. I want to go bowling. Folks, the purpose of worship is to form us such that we will not settle for Kansas when we can have Disney World. <laughs> the purpose of worship is to convince us week after week after week of our original conviction that Jesus is Lord and his promises of resurrected life in his presence hold us together now. And that's why we worship.